0: It's so cool to be back. I hope you're all having a happy new year so far. Um, In case anyone has never heard me speak, the accent's funny, I apologize if it's distracting. Before I start, I would like us to be able to take a real practical application away with us today. So I would like to ask you, if you would, and if it's not too triggering, don't share it, just quietly in your own mind, to bring to mind a memory of slightly stressful or challenging situations, just one actually, just one situation that you have found challenging in recent time that you went through, took you out of your best self for a moment. Just pop that on the shelf in your brain somewhere, and we'll come back to it later. But today we are talking about Sabbath rest And I am so excited. We're in the very first of a series of nine spiritual practices that we're going to be enjoying from now until Palm Sunday. And we're starting with a really, really good one. It's exciting times to be part of the church. But before we start, please can I remind you that these practices are not here to stress you out or to burden you or to make you feel overwhelmed, judged, or condemned in any way. We're not here to put guilt or pressure on anybody. These practices are designed to help us to deepen our spiritual walk, to deepen our faith, and to help us to align more and more gradually with God's plan for our lives. Like Ben said last week, this isn't about working harder. None of us really need that. Well, maybe some of us do, but most of us don't need to be working harder. We want to train harder. And if I may, I invite us to consider training smarter. The Sabbath is a key to doing this. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, shows us an account of God's creation. He spends six days working, creating everything. And then on the seventh day, He rests, but it's more than an example and a suggestion. It's the fourth commandment. We can see it later on. He literally writes it in stone. Resting and keeping the Sabbath holy is important. So if you're new to this language, when I talk about Sabbath, when we talk about biblical Sabbath, what we're talking about is six days on, one day off. It's a ratio, okay? We work for six days, we rest for one day. We can see evidence of Jesus in the Bible, sprinkled all over. There's clues about him in the New Testament all the way through the Old Testament as well. If you look, you can find him there. And the same is true for these spiritual practices. If you look, you'll see them, glimpses of them, clues playing out all the way through the book. And so today's story is an example of this. It might not be a story you've ever applied To the concept of Sabbath before, but bear with me. I think we'll get somewhere good. The Sabbath isn't a rule for the sake of rules. We want to understand a little bit of the heart behind it, because God knows we struggle. God knows that we struggle, and he provides for us in a loving way. So as we get ready for today's reading, let me just fill you in on where we are so far. We're in the Old Testament. David has united all the various tribes and and united them into a kingdom, Israel. A kingdom requires a king. And so far, Israel has had a series, one after another, of really, really bad kings. They're corrupt. They're evil. And that is why we have the prophets. So prophets are more than fortune-telling predictors of the future. God's prophets were called to the very challenging work of holding up the authority of God's word in the face of any other authority that comes against it. We're talking today about Elijah. Elijah is an incredibly important prophet, and he was tasked with an incredibly bad king, Ahab. He's gone down in history in not a good way. The Bible says Ahab did more evil in the sight of God than anybody else. He's married to Jezebel. Jezebel worships Baal. She has this army of prophets for Baal who, 450 of them, they are doing terrible things and bringing awful darkness into the world. Worship of Baal involves bad things like child sacrifice. Okay, so it's evil in the sight of God. Elijah was called to deal with this. So far, we're going to drop into his story. He's been through a lot already. He's just had a face-off, a showdown with 450 of his opponents. God showed up and he was proved, proved real, proved true. Our God was proved true. But now Jezebel's mad. She's just found out 450 of her guys have been defeated. And she's not happy about it. So let's tune in now for today's reading.
1: Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, may it be ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death of the sword. I am the only one left,
0: and now they are trying to kill me too. One look at Elijah's life, and it's pretty clear there's a lot going on. Let's look back at verse 3. Elijah's under threat. What does he do? He flees. He leaves his companion and runs. Now, there are a lot of instances in the New Testament where we see Jesus leave the action, take himself away in order to pray. But I don't think that that's what's happening here. I suspect that Elijah freaked out. He's scared, and he's panicking, and he's running. He's running because Jezebel's put put a threat out for his life. You might be familiar with fight, flight, and freeze. These are the um, known as the stress responses or the panic responses. From the earliest times, humans have had to fight and strive to survive. The earliest man, when faced with a dangerous wild animal, would have um, a, a, a surge of adrenaline come through his body so that he could run to safety or stand and fight for his life, or sometimes the most appropriate response would be to freeze. This stress response, this panic response, sends a signal through our body's nervous system that says, you are in danger, do something. Now, Tom and I are still relatively new in America and where we live up on the mountain, we have a good amount of wildlife. It's amazing. I love it. Not not much of it is particularly dangerous, but we moved here from England, and in England, if you wake up to find that your rubbish bins have been knocked over, there's three reasons why this would happen. One, a fox about, about this big, two, a badger roughly about the same size, or three, somebody on his way home from the pub. Here we have bears, bears. I didn't know, I had no idea until we moved here. And it's thrilling, I love bears, but I'm also a mum, so I need to be sensible. And I felt that it was necessary to read up about this because um, I knew kind of in the back of my mind that there are some bears you're supposed to play dead for. But I got a bit confused because somebody else said something else. So I did some research and I found a nice little poem that's very helpful to me. If it's brown, lie down. If it's black, fight back. If it's white, say goodnight. You're gonna die. (laughs) (laughs) But even poetry can't save me, because what i found in real life is that Californians' black bears are decidedly brown in appearance. It's confusing, and the margin for error is big. But don't worry, I have no intention of having a standoff with a bear, and it turns out the bears are not very interested in me either, thank God. But here's the thing. Most of us are not under threat by wild animals, but a lot of us do feel that we're under threat. Modern life alone has us triggered into that panic-stress response that is exactly the same as it's been since the beginning of time. Our bodies are always ready to fight, or to run, or to freeze in paralysis. And you know what? Modern stress has added another one to the list. It's now fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. To fawn is to become very submissive and people-pleasing. It's a type of proactive defense mechanism. So let me ask you, what happens to you when you're under stress? What's your go-to? It's not intentional usually, it just happens that thing that I asked you to put on the shelf, that stressful thing that you went through, whatever it was, maybe a job interview, a presentation, an argument, a big bill arriving. How did you respond? I know this will depend on what the situation was and it will also depend on how well you slept the night before, if you're hungry or whatever else is going on. Like black bears being brown sometimes, it's hard to always work out exactly what's happening to any individual in any given situation. But let's just take that one example. And I've written a little personality quiz for us to try. You don't need to put your hand up because that would be weird. Um, just, Just answer it for yourself. So, when you were under your stress, what did you do? A, you got really angry and you went down fighting. B, you did a runner. You removed yourself from the situation. C, you went into a type of paralysis, kind of burying your head in the sand and hoping if you ignore the problem, it would go away. D, you swallowed your own principles and gave in to somebody else to avoid disappointing them but kind of forgot that in doing so you were disappointing yourself. E, some combination of the above. Or F, maybe you're really proud of how you handled it, and if that's you, congratulations. We're not here to just beat ourselves up for the sake of it. That's not what we're doing. But please pray for us, because there's a lot of people in the room who struggle. Our nervous systems are all over the place, to the point that I'm starting to believe this thing that I read recently that says... The true measure of success is a calm nervous system. I saw it on Instagram, so it must be true. (laughs) It's impossible to be our best selves when we're stuck in that panic response. Who are you when you're your best self? I know that sometimes I get so stuck in the stress that I can't even remember. We're about to jump back into Elijah's story, but before we do this, I really want to show you this video that has been the biggest blessing to me um, over the holiday period. Some of you might have seen it already. It's a little boy in England who's just been given his role in the nativity. Um, not sure that nativity translates here, but in England, every single primary school will have like a, a, the, the little ones act out the Christmas story in an assembly, and the parents go and watch them. So we've got like, the whole setup, the, sh- the, the animals and the main players. So here's Milo telling his mum about his role.
1: Go on. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part. Yeah. Um Joseph? No. one uh, of the three wise men? No. One of the innkeepers? No. Up Press the um button to answer. Call rejected. But it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay, um you tell me then, cuz. I'm um, door holder number three, I'll be holding doors. That's amazing. Holding doors for who? Um probably um Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? Yeah. What and you, what did you do? And I was like, I'm a door holder. Get in there, let's go. Yes.
0: Yeah. Whoa. And, Don't you love him? I can't get it out of my mind. I want to be like Milo. I think if he holds on to that attitude as he grows up, he'll be able to say, truly, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot, it's well. But let's get back to Elijah now. In verse four, he's fled. He's isolated himself. What does he do next? He collapses and he tells God he wants his life to be over. God, I'm ready to meet my ancestors in the the grave. Don't raise your hand, but I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one in the room who gets to that level of drama. What next? Verses 5 and 6. He sleeps. He sleeps, he wakes up, has something to eat, and goes back to sleep. Theologian Dr. Joy Clarkson tweeted about this a few years ago, and it went viral. Here's what she said. This is your gentle reminder that one time in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad, I want to die. So God said, here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept, ate, and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. She's right. Some of you will know that it is incredibly challenging to put an overtired, exhausted, overwhelmed child to bed. But you know what's even more challenging? Putting an overwhelmed, tired, exhausted self to bed. Do you resonate? I know in my head, I know logically that a good night's sleep will help me wake up and deal with whatever it is that needs dealing with. But my actions sometimes would suggest that I think it would be a better idea to stay awake and fret about whatever it is all night long. Friedrich Nietzsche says, when we're tired, we are attacked by ideas that we conquered long ago. Are there any nervous flyers in the room? I have a couple of them in my family and uh, one of them has to sit next to the window and stare out of the window the whole time. And I'm talking about a long haul flight here. You're supposed to sleep on those. But this person stares. Why? Because if they stop staring out the window, the plane might fall out of the sky. It doesn't make sense. Poet and philosopher David White says this, to rest is to give up on worrying and fretting and the sense that there is something wrong in the world unless we are there to put it right. So let's go back to Elijah. We've left him sleeping in verse six. He gets up, he eats again, and then he travels for 40 days and nights, arrives at a cave, what does he do next? He goes back to sleep. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest, and she says this, sleep is an inevitable ritual whereby we acknowledge our limitations before a limitless God. It sometimes takes trust to fall asleep. Then God wakes him up and he asks him, what are you doing here? This is an interesting move on God's part if you ask me. Why would an all-knowing, ever-present God ask him that? He was the one who orchestrated the, the journey. And then he asks him, why are you here? Elijah responds, though, he knows exactly where he is in his own story. God, I did all the things you asked me to do. It still didn't go well. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. What comes next? Verses 11 and 13, in my opinion, are is just the most beautiful passage, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible, because God tells Elijah to go and stand on a mountain and wait. I think it's important because... This is a verse that's really helpful in the times where you don't know where God is, where you can't seem to find him. He tells us exactly where he is and where he's not. He's not in the storms, he's not in the winds, he's not in the earthquake or the fire. He's in the gentle, quiet whisper. And life is full of storms earthquakes and fires, figuratively and literally. And it seems like once you put one fire out, something else happens over there. And I've I found, sadly, that there's no logic, reason, or fairness to this rhythm. We don't always get to have like a really hard time that we survive, followed by a nice, quiet patch. It doesn't always work that way. But you know what else is the good news? That God is always there. He's always present, and he is always just one prayer away. But... He whispers. He whispers. He communicates with us in such a way that we have to lean in. Elijah submitted to sleep. He rested. He ate what God gave him. And he was able then to hear God in the still small whisper. Is it possible that if he hadn't rested, he might have been so busy running around and fleeing and fretting that he could have missed it? I know that I don't want that to happen to me. Next up, God tells Elijah where he is. I'm in the whisper. And then he asks Elijah the exact same question again. Why are you here? And Elijah answers with the exact same answer. Only now something's changed. Now he's heard from God. Now he knows where God is. Our situation might not change after a rest. In fact, I found it rarely does. But our ability to handle the situation changes a lot. And this is true for so many types of rest, but it's profoundly important when it comes to spiritual holy Sabbath rest, which we're gonna talk about the practicalities of that in a minute. But before I do so, I, just so I don't leave you hanging, I wanna tell you what happened to Elijah after that. He um, Downloads basically a very clear plan from God about what he needs to do, but God also addresses his very big concern, which is that I'm alone doing this. I'm the last one. God says, actually, you know what? You're not the last one. There's some other people out there doing my work. It's not all on you, but I still need you to do your work because this is why I've put you here. I've called you to this and um, you can do it. You can do it faithfully. So Elijah does that and he sees God move powerfully. He sees God destroy enemies with lightning bolts. He sees the Jordan River part and then he's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. So it works out quite well for him. What does Elijah's story have to do with the Sabbath? We're different people after we've met with God. After we've learned to lean in and listen to that still small voice, we become not only slightly better versions of ourselves, but also sometimes God tells us exactly what to do. It's good when that happens. The world is by default a loud and fast uh, fast paced place. And so we have to be really intentional if we want to hear the still small voice. And instead of waiting until we've collapsed in a heap and got dramatic and wanting to die, what if we regularly submitted ourselves To God's restorative care. Sabbath is more than a break, it's more than a day off work. It's God's baked in provision for the fact that without that regular reset, we get overwhelmed with the speed and the sheer volume of life. So, Sabbath is our call to fall into God's ordained rhythm and natural order of creation. Everything works in seasons. Nature works in seasons, farmers will tell you that um, fields need to have fallow periods to avoid soil degradation and over-farming. And as modern-day people, we understand that a car needs fuel put into it or we need to charge it before it will work. We understand that our electronic devices don't work indefinitely. They need downtime and regular charging and the occasional restart. My father passed away 15 years ago, and that was when Tom took up the role of tech support for my mom, God bless him. My mom is brilliant and clever, and her mind moves fast, but she also has inspired for me to add another one into the um, stress responses, so if we've got fight, flight, freeze, fawn, we can have fretting and like freaking out. She freaks out when the laptop doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And nine times out of ten, Tom can fix the problem without even looking at the laptop. He doesn't like to look at the laptop because... Her file management is is not great. Um, things are open everywhere. There's no space on the, on, on the screen. So what does he do? You know what he says. When was the last time you turned it off? Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? <laughs> it works most of the time. As modern-day people, we get this. Athletes will tell you that interval training, you know, speed intervals interspersed with periods of rest is much more effective than just training for duration and endurance alone. We get this, and yet there's a cognitive dissonance that happens for so many of us. Somehow we get prone to thinking that we can go on and on and on without a rest, and even worse, in some religious communities, we start to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're extra holy if we don't rest. Sabbath is God's provision for that aspect of human nature. Dallas Willard says this, Sabbath is a way of life. It sets us free from bondage to our own efforts. And only in this way can we come to power and joy of a radiant life in ministry and be a blessing to all we touch. God knew we'd struggle with this. He not only delivered a law literally written in stone, but he himself gave us an example to observe. He co-regulates us. It can be helpful for, um, I won't explain co-regulation right now because we're running out of time, but I just want you to know that if you look, you will see that example given to us. But what does Sabbath actually look like? What is it supposed to look like? This is the part that's open to interpretation, From the earliest times, people have interpreted Sabbath rest in all sorts of ways. Um, If you ever read The Little House on the Prairie series, you'll know that Laura Ingalls Wilder talks about Sabbath being a day where they all just had to sit on chairs in silence because they weren't allowed to work or have fun. I looked up an orthodox Jewish website and found these 39 categories of Sabbath work that's prohibited by law so you can't do any of these things. Okay, don't do any of these. I'm I'm kidding. I'm making a joke out of this, but the question is, we can, we can get wrapped up in what's allowed and what's not. What can I do? What can't I do? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? And this is a part of being um, in a life of faith that we need to be careful about and, and keep, a, keep a tab on. Because for one person, binge-watching an entire Netflix series or playing video games is exactly what the doctor ordered. And for someone else, that is exactly what they need to not do. And we have to be mature and grown up and open to the Spirit's guidance to kind of find our way through this. And also, if I may say, not worry too much about what the next person is doing. But what if your work schedule doesn't allow for a 24-hour block of rest? It it can be divided up. I took out my calendar, my, my calculator this morning and I was like, 24 times seven And then you minus 24 hours, and then if we can intersperse those around and just make it add up. But I think once you get the calculator out, I start missing the point. I start missing the point a little bit. That's not what this is about. There is a spirit to resting that um, is kind of opposed to the should and shouldn't and policing that we tend to get caught up in as well. Jesus gives us another example of this. Uh, we don't need to turn to it right now, but if you want to look at it this week in Mark 2:23 to 28, there's the story of him and his disciples going for a walk through the cornfields and they pick the corn and the Pharisees pop up and go, ha, I caught you, you're working. And Jesus says, hey, the Sabbath is for us. We, if Sabbath is made for me. It's not, I'm not made for it. I don't serve it. I am not a slave to it. But John Mark Comer has a website. Uh, We have a QR code to share with you where he um, shares some really practical tips and you can sign up if you want to kind of be really intentional about looking into this. But there are some bullet points for you to remember. The first main one is to start small, to go easy on yourself, and then to just stop. Don't let Sabbath become another item on your to-do list. Rest. You might need to spend the first several Sabbaths eating and sleeping like Elijah did until you feel restored enough to hit a different rhythm. David White again says, rest is not self-indulgent. To rest is to prepare to give the best of ourselves and to perhaps most importantly arrive at a place where we are able to understand what we've already been given. Number three, delight. Do something life-giving. Who here considers themselves someone who plays? Do you know what it is to play? Sometimes we lose it as we grow up. What delights your soul? Have you unearthed your passions or hobbies or anything that feeds you in a way that might be completely separate from productivity and work? Dan Allender says, Sabbath is our play day. It's not a break from, from the routine of work, but as a feast that celebrates the super abundance of God's creative love. Do you know how to play? Is it time to learn again? And number four, worship. Commit your rest time to God. Pray at the beginning and the end of Sabbath to just be really intentional about it. And you can come to church and worship with others, or you can stay home and worship alone. But whatever you do, I want to encourage you to lean in to hear that still small voice. I'm going to wrap up soon. But finally, I want to say, expect resistance. Rest, and particularly Sabbath rest, is countercultural. People won't like it if you're not as available as you used to be. You can expect that and try not to worry about it too much. But what happens if your Sabbath falls on a Sunday and then you're serving at church and you're volunteering and it's it gets confusing and again, we start kind of getting pulled into the details of it. For the church staff, they are obviously working today. They can have their Sabbath a different day of the week. But for us volunteers, that's, that can be a tricky space. So I encourage you again, if you are a volunteer, um, to try and compensate for any times that you're giving out at church with another space in the week, or try and give at church in such a way that is life-giving. That's a very big possibility too. I used to be the volunteer coordinator in a church many, many years ago, and the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that the strength of a church, the church is only as strong as its most tired or vulnerable or weak or struggling member. We want to be a strong community here. And so that doesn't mean giving beyond what you actually have capacity to give. It means taking on um, the responsibility of saying yes and saying no in accordance to what is right with your walk with God and your capacity. So church, I'm going to finish now and I'm going to make a final request. Please can we be a community that is fiercely committed to dwelling in God's promise of rest. Let's love each other so well that we respect each other's boundaries when we come up against them because those are an essential pillar to a healthy church. Churches can sadly become stressful places, right? And I don't think that's God's will. People pleasers can be drawn to church communities and they can also get spat out the other end. And if that's you, and if you have that, I encourage you to come down for prayer at the end of this service and and see if it's time to make an adjustment. We're going to take a chance now to exercise a restful moment. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to sing a song and give you a space to just reflect on what you've heard this morning. Go back That personality quiz just then. Have you been a little bit grumpy lately? Is there stuff going on that's bringing out not the best side of your personality? Are you feeling like, I want to be a bit more like Milo? I want to be excited about whatever God's got for me. Have you been frozen in fear or not dealing with something that you do actually need to deal with? These are all questions that we have space now in church to consider. Spiritual formation is another name that gets put on these practices. It's a good and right thing to do at any time, but it's particularly important to do if you've been through a season of deconstruction. There's a season to prune, to unpack, and to tear down. But then it's followed by a season of rebuilding, and we rebuild smarter. And you're in a safe place today to do that. So let's reflect now as the band plays. Ask God, where am I at with all of this? What shall I do next? What could I do to play? I want to play. Let's pray first. Father, thank you. Thank you that it was never your plan for us to wear ourselves out. Thank you that you knew we'd struggle and that you've given us an example And an opportunity to fall into a healthier rhythm. I pray for forgiveness for the times that I've not been able to show up as my best self because I wore myself out. I got caught up in the details and in the shoulds and should nots. Lord, please would you help us, God, as a church, to to show up as our best selves, to take care of the rest. To encourage one another. We commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.